This is Lifelong Learning on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. And we're broadcasting from the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions at their annual meeting. We're in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is Isabel Vache. She's the Vice President of Education Strategy at Access Medical Education. And we're going to talk about shared decision-making. Isabel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we are going to talk about shared decision-making, and clearly it's not what everybody thinks it is. So let's start out first with what I think you know is to be a bit of a controversy about what clinicians are saying and what patients are hearing, and then we'll evolve our way to shared decision-making. So can you describe the issues on that for me? Yes. So we have a body of research that shows us that there is a a real disconnect oftentimes between what the patient might be hearing, feeling, thinking when they hear a diagnosis from a clinician and what the clinician thinks the patient may be hearing, seeing, feeling. And oftentimes in that encounter, what happens then is just a real disconnect in communication. So is evolving from that, we, we find ourselves talking about shared decision-making, but that doesn't sound like something that is terribly new. It's been around, but it, it's evolving. It is, absolutely. So, you know, many, many years ago, I was a nurse, and when I went through nursing school, we were certainly taught to be educators. We were taught to provide information to the patients and to the families, perhaps refer them to resources and support whatever the doctor's recommendations were in terms of the education needed. But things have really evolved since that time. And we are at a place now where we are thinking about that exchange and that engagement in a very different way. So when we would previously educate a patient, we would be providing information to them. In shared decision-making, what we're doing is we're inviting the patient to participate in the health care decision, whatever that decision may be. And we are inviting the patient to think about in the context of their decision once we've provided them with all of the information they need to make an informed decision in terms of a treatment recommendation or whatever it may be. We're asking them to reflect on and share with us what their values, preferences, and you know goals are for their care. That's very different than the place that we were, you know, very recently, which was just serving up information to patients right. and families. We want to get to that place where we're truly engaging them in decisions about their health care. And what we're learning is that when we implement true shared decision-making and patient engagement, it increases patient satisfaction, it increases things like uh, adherence and compliance to medications, it can reduce medication errors. It's really quite incredible what we find when we are truly able to engage the patient in, in their own health care. So it sounds like a much more immersive experience for the patient than it was before. Absolutely, and much some, more immersive. And put some responsibility on the patient that might not have been there. Well, the thing about shared decision-making is it's the process. So we, we have to, as clinicians, invite the patient into this process, and they may choose to decline. And that's okay, too. That's part of taking their values, preferences, and goals into consideration if they decline to participate. But if we provide information to a patient and we're not helping them work through a process where they're considering all of the options in the context of their values, preferences, goals, 
then we may create a situation for a patient that they may not have arrived at had they had been equipped with all of that information. And that's not something that happens in one discussion, clearly, but it is something that we work towards with a process of shared decision-making and often equip the patient with tools and resources, such as decision support aids, to help them through this reflective process. I was going to ask about that because the tools sound like even those have to be different. They have to be more immersive and engaging. So Absolutely. Tell us about that. That is extremely important. So shared decision-making goes hand-in-hand with a lot of research that's being done on decision support tools for patients. So if I were previously in my nursing career, I would be speaking with you and I would give you literature to read or I might refer you to a website or, you know, I might hand you a brochure or something of that nature. But what I'm not doing, what I'm missing there, is the opportunity to help the patient reflect on all of this information and bring in perceptions that they have about goals and their preferences for treatment. So good decision aids do that. They're not static, they're interactive. They help the patient think about, they support what the clinician has shared in terms of all of the options that they have. But then they bring in an aspect of now reflect goals, treat, you know, goals for treatment. What are your preferences? Uh, Do you want to bring your family into this process? And good decision support aides do that. And then they they allow that process outside of the, the clinician encounter for the patient and families to reflect and really come to a decision that's right for that particular patient. Have you seen a big difference in getting the clinician to the table on this versus getting the patient to the table on this? Is it kind of a pull for both of them? You know, I think the large majority of research shows that clinicians understand that this is ethically the right thing to do. And a lot of times if you ask them if they're, if they're engaging the patient, they'll say yes. But they're often thinking of it from the old way of delivering information to patients. So that's that disconnect that we see between what the clinicians may think the patients want or need and what the patients actually want and need. So, yes. Interesting. Any interesting outcomes you've seen from studies, any research that is showing some real impact in certain disease states with this more than others? Absolutely. I mean, one of the top ones that come to mind is the Dartmouth-Hitchcock shared decision-making. They're a center of excellence, and they have really been a leader in implementing shared decision-making in practice. And in breast cancer, in prostate cancer, they would be, if you were starting to consider shared decision-making, I would highly recommend looking at Dartmouth-Hitchcock program. The Informed Medical Decisions Foundation has is a rich resource if you are getting started. There are a number of very important papers written on shared decision-making and implementation into various states in the United States. There are five states currently that have either shared decision-making policies or legislation, and many others that are considering shared decision-making legislation. Speaking of legislation, I mean, does this tie back to incentives for clinicians if they are 
performing in a certain way? It, it absolutely can. Medical homes, HMOs, PPOs, Blue Cross Blue Shield comes to mind, have worked in measures for the clinicians in their network where they are you know, assessing certain quality components. And one of the quality components is oftentimes patient engagement and patient satisfaction. And they're evaluated. You know, patients are asked and, you know, that it's tied back to the individual practice or the individual physician or clinicians. And if those measures are met, there's greater reimbursement. There, there are financial incentives now. Oh, that's good to know. So looking out maybe five or ten years or not even ten, but looking out, what, where do you see this going and, and having an impact on the patient? Oh gosh, I think if we if we do this right, the impact on on the patient and family uh, can be incredible, and I'm very excited about it. You know, I, at the end of the day, I was a nurse for ten years, so I remain a nurse at heart. I think that we will come to a point where we have enough case studies to look at, where we can create some sort of a best practices for implementing shared decision-making programs. The states that have implemented shared decision-making have some very interesting, they're very interesting case studies that we can follow, what works, what doesn't work. But, you know, I'd like to see us get to a point where we're not siloing physician, clinician, nurse, pharmacist education, and patient and family education as educators. We're designing education when we're thinking about the entire healthcare team, including patients and families, and we're designing education that is aligned with those two groups in a very meaningful way, you know, perhaps looking at each state's need in this regard and adapting our shared decision-making practices to accommodate what specific needs in specific areas. But I think, again, you know, that we start thinking about it as continuing medical educators, that we start thinking about patients and families in a much more aligned way. And we, we are designing programs that that address everyone. That's and good. measurement, I want to maybe close. One of the very important things that we have to do in this movement is we have to look at the outcomes associated with these sorts of efforts. Again, it's still in its infancy in terms of implementation, although shared decision-making is not a new term. Right. In terms of implementation, it's certainly still in its infancy. So we really have to get to a point where we are doing good outcomes assessments. We're looking you know, at this from a quality perspective, and we are forming best practices. And you're looking at it from the assessment of the clinician engagement, the education that's in there, and how that parlays over to the patient engagement as well. Well, we're looking at the at the patient and families too. You know, we want to know, was there a quality change for you? Did you feel more engaged in your care? Were you more satisfied with your care? Did you feel like your voice was heard? Did you feel like your values and your preferences were, did you get all of the information you needed? To make that decision. To make that decision. Exactly. And that decision may be, I don't want to do anything. And that's okay, too, because, you know, we have to sort of, I think, as clinicians, change our mindset that we're not fighting a war on this, whatever, on cancer, that we're not fighting a war on cancer, you know, and we're not going to fight to the death if the patient doesn't want to fight to the death if they choose to do no treatment at all. They've reflected and they've said, I I don't want to do anything. It sounds like the right alignment for the patient. Then we have done the right thing by the patient. Yeah, that's fantastic. 
Any resources, you'd mentioned Dartmouth, but any places our listeners can go to, any uh, foundations that have more information? Mm -hmm. I would certainly go to the Informed Medical Decisions Foundation. Uh, They are probably one of the um, most seasoned organizations in the shared decision-making space. I would start there, and they have a number of resources, and open your mind up and research shared decision-making. Look at what different programs are are out there, look at what different states are doing, and go from there. That's terrific. Well, you know, at ReachMD, we like people to be part of the knowledge, so thank you for sharing what you know with us. Thank you. Isabel Vache, she's the Vice President of Education Strategy at Access Medical Education. Pleasure to have you with us. My pleasure, too. Thank you. Thank you. We're broadcasting from the Alliance for Continuing Education in the Health Professions at their annual meeting, and we're in Washington, D.C. For more information, please visit www.reachmd.com.